We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 today, chapter 2 today. We're continuing through the text. Now, I want us to remember and lock down on the metaphor, which is that uh, we're in a spiritual battle. Number one, us against forces of darkness. But number two, that God has put us in a chess game. That it is his influence through us, moving us different places, mitigating and affecting the influence of the enemy through his people. So there's this chess board, there's this movement. You really kind of see that particularly in the book of Job. But we are being put... Now, so what the enemy would want to do is stop us from being effective on the board. Now, so I want us to look today. We're going to look carefully what the text says, but look down particularly in verse 11. We're going to discuss uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But look at verse 11. He says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. Now, so what Paul's about to describe that occurs inside this church was a scheme of Satan. It wasn't just that they were oscillating between different positions. It was, in fact, a work of the enemy inside the church to cause them to move two different directions. Now, here's the first direction. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Remember, we're in the context. He's defending himself, and they've said, some of the Jewish leadership has come in and said, man, he, he lies, he doesn't tell the truth which would make him capable of running for office in America. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? I wrote as I did. In other words, he's referencing back the the letter we have in 1 Corinthians. matter of fact, what he's really referencing, and we'll see in a moment, is chapter 5. So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, hold with me there. Obviously, he's referencing, and we don't have time to go into it today, but in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians... There is a real mess in the church. One of the things is that there is a man. Now remember, Corinth, I think I've shared with you before, there is an actual Greek word, Corinthianazo, obviously not a translation, but a transliteration of the word Corinth into Greek. It was used by the Greeks to define really bad, immoral lifestyle. Corinth, I mean, Rome was bad. Corinth was the bad of the bad. So he writes to them and he says, you've got a guy in your church, who basically in the text is physically intimate with his stepmother. And he says, you've got a guy in your church doing things the people in your town wouldn't do. And you haven't done anything about it. You've let him stay. You've let him come to worship. You've let him give his tithes. You've done nothing. He said, you need to do something about it. 
Because you can't let that kind of thing stay in your church. You've got to address that kind of sin that is so loud that even the people in your city who have their own verb form for how bad they are by an empire that's bad, they think what he does is bad. So you can't possibly ignore this. Now he knew, he obviously had some Southern Baptists in there because he knew what was going to come. And so at the end of the chapter he says, let me remind you, we don't judge lost people, but we most assuredly judge believers. Now, there's a clear distinction, and he lays that out. The punishment he demands in the chapter is severe. The exact phrase is, he says, I want him delivered over to Satan. Now, the context probably implies, and of course you can imagine with that statement how many bizarre interpretations they are, but probably in the context what he's saying is, get him out of the church. Because there's only one church in Corinth in that day. And so if he gets him out, then he's alone facing a lost world without his brothers. So he says, get him out. As a matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. He says, you can't even eat lunch with him. You can't take him to an Aggie baseball game. You can't text him. You can't email him. You can't call him. You can't even have lunch with him. Now, what he thought was, and this is his point, in the first part of chapter 2, he thought, you know, I, I doubt you're going to do what I say, so I didn't come. Because I didn't want to come and get in, the, get in the church service and have to sit down with you and say, why didn't you do what I told you to do? So I was afraid it'd be a painful visit, so I didn't come. But you did it. Obviously, he did it really well. Amazingly enough, they took his letter and said, Okay, there was a guy, there were three men hunting, a doctor, a lawyer, and a preacher. And they're deer hunting, deer comes out, the preacher and the lawyer both uh, shoot at the same time, deer goes down. So the doctor says, look, I'll go figure out which one of you hit it. Doctor goes down, comes back up in the stand and says, preacher hit it. Lawyer goes, how do you know that? He said, because the bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> Obviously, Paul thought that's what was going to happen with his letter. They'd read it in church, it'd go in one ear, out the other. But apparently, they actually, shockingly, did what he said. And they took this guy and booted him. You're gone. Don't come back. Now, at some point, so here's the first place they are. Their first failure is their, I'm trying to figure out how best to say this, they're, they don't understand grace. They think they do, but they don't. Let me always be clear. Grace is that you don't deserve anything, but God gives you everything. But holiness should come out of a grace experience. You don't get to live in grace and just ignore your sin. Which is what they were doing. They are just going, no big deal. So they're kind of over-graced here. And so they correct it. But now watch what's happened. Verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you were obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. So here's what's happened. Number one, they've said, okay, we'll boot him out. Then the poor guy has gotten out and said, I was wrong. Sin, whatever word we want to use, I, I wasn't living the way God intended for me to. I was wrong. I made a mistake. He comes back to the church and he says, hey, I blew it. And the church goes, bummer. Get out of the building. Don't come back. You have no right to be in this room. You've sinned. You are a vile, filthy, wicked, sorry, piece of dirt sinner. Go home. So Paul now writes and goes, okay, you're crazy here, and now you're crazy here. you got to get somewhere back in the middle. Now you're overly righteous. Over here, you're not righteous at all. So the scheme of the enemy. Now you think about your life today, and we're going to walk through some things. Hmm. Think about your life today, because that scheme is what he does to every church and every Christian. There are churches out there in our city today that are grace-centered, that you can pretty much do anything you want, it's okay. There are churches in our city that are law-centered, that boy, you better make sure exactly how you live or you're going to be booted out and dealt with. There are some of you in here that are grace-centered, you think you can do anything you want, it's no big deal. There's some of you in here who are law-centered. Well, anybody does something wrong in your life, you are done with them. So what do we do? We want to be in the middle. If we're one of the two spots, we're under Satan's directive. We're in the middle. We're under God's directive. So how do we do that? First thing. I'm going to call the verses out. You can go with me or not. But Leviticus chapter 19. Now, it's interesting. We're going through the books of the Bible on Wednesday nights. And i got to confess, I never really saw this until we were going through the books of the Bible. But in Genesis, it's pretty clear we see man blowing it. In Exodus... We see God redeeming Israel. And then here's the interesting thing. In Leviticus, he gives them the law. And then in Numbers, he tries to place them in the purpose for which he's called them. But here's the interesting thing. He doesn't give them the law until he redeems them. Once they leave and they're out of Egypt and they're at Sinai, then he gives them the law. He doesn't tell them to be holy till he's redeemed them. You're not supposed to be holy to get saved. Grace is the only thing that will save you. But once grace occurs, God is going to ask you then to be like he is. And the end result will be he, you will be able to live out the purpose for which he has you on this planet. So, listen to what he says, Leviticus 19, 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, 
For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, I picked up a book this week. Started reading it in Bundy. And it epitomized for me what I think is a central issue that's placed a lot of churches unknowingly inside this over-grace camp. The book was about worship. And it quoted Moses when he said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship. And so the whole argument of the book was that I've been saved so I can sing songs, so we can listen to music, so we can worship God. That's the tenor. Now, Leviticus 19, when they're out of Egypt, and he says, here's what I have for you. It's nothing about worship. Real worship isn't your mouth. It is your life. Real worship is I'm going to be intentionally holy to the Father. Now, worship then. Now, listen to me carefully today. I'm going to walk through a lot of stuff. Just take a break. Golf tournament doesn't come on until 2. Here we go. Now, worship is rooted in and should increase holiness. Can't worship unless you're trying to be intentionally holy. And if you're intentionally holy, worship will make that better. For example, first time praise courses ever really began to hit for me was in the 70s. And uh, one of the songs was this this little two lines out of the song. It was, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. Now that was the tenor of the song. He paid something I couldn't pay, and he paid something he didn't know. He did that for me because he loved me. Now, if I get up and I come to church and I'm intentionally holy, I want to be what God wants me to be. If I'm intentional about that and I sing that song, listen, I should leave the church thinking to myself, I don't want anything in my life that created the debt. Because he paid it he shouldn't have. I couldn't pay it. So I don't want anything in my life that creates that debt. That song, if it is rooted in holiness, should increase my desire for holiness. We sing, the Lord reigns. If I walk out this door and I believe that, If I really believe that, I can face the insanity of what we have politically. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. When I leave, I want to remember how great he's been to me and let that tether me to who he is. I offer my heart to you. See, if I'm I'm intentionally holy, And I come in here and sing those words ought to increase my holiness. If they don't. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Look at Amos. 
chapter 5. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. He's in the middle of those short prophets. I want you to listen to chapter 5, verse 21. And think about what we just did. Because there are churches all over this city that people have come today thinking, if I lift my hands and I sing to Jesus and there are tears running down my face and I'm emotionally moved, I can still go home and sleep with my boyfriend. And it's okay. Now listen to this. Amos 5.21 I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You walk in here, and you're not intentional about holiness, and you sing these songs, listen, he sits up there and ignores you. He doesn't hear you. He pays no attention. It doesn't matter how well you sing. It doesn't matter how many tears you've got crying. Listen, Judas wept bitterly and rejected our Savior. It is not how well you sing. It is how well you live. And you have to be intentional about His holiness or your songs are unaccepted by the Father. Now, I have to say this all the time. So let me be clear. You have to be intentional about what God says is holy, not what you think is holy. We are locked into, I think sometimes, far more of man's rules than we are of God's directives. What does the Bible say about gambling? Nothing. It doesn't say anything. We got Christians in this state that freak out when gambling is brought in by the state legislature and they go and protest and they boycott and they scream and holler. And I'm telling you, the Bible didn't say anything about it. Would we take money from a gambler? Oh, yeah. Today, bring me the check now. I will put it in my Bible and get it to my treasure. What does the Bible say about, here's a biggie, dancing. What does it say? Nothing. A couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago, we had the daddy-daughter dance. Those are the three words that occur in the hallway in this church. Let me tell you something. Fifteen years ago in this church, if we put daddy and daughter dance, if the word dance had been in the hallway on a Sunday morning, 
I'd have had to cancel my email account. What does the Bible say about a quiet time with God? Does it say, now it does say in the Bible that I'm to seek the Father. Present tense in the Greek, so I'm to continually seek Him. No question about that. But I can take you to literally, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of books that will tell you to pray in the morning I tell you how long to pray how much of the Bible to read what you should pray I mean they will give you every lined out detail in the world when you read the Bible it doesn't say anything about it at all it doesn't even tell you to have a daily quiet time it doesn't even say that there is nothing about it so I mean if the Bible says Jesus arose before the morning to pray it also says that he prayed all night the Bible doesn't give us rules about that, but we've got hundreds of books out there, and there's some of you in this room. You are living off what those books say instead of the freedom of what the Bible says about just seeking a father. What does the Bible say about dating? Kissing? Well, you can see them now going. What does the Bible say about those two things? It actually does speak interestingly enough to an issue now there are books out there there are books out there that will tell you you shouldn't do any sort of you should never date alone together you should only do group dating there are things out there that say you should not pray together when you're dating because that will increase your sexual desire so you shouldn't pray together there are books that say you should not kiss anybody before you marry I'm going to get killed for this, but be, let, let me go all the way here with, oh, that's a bad phrase. Let me, uh, <laughs> oh, well, you can't get back out of that one. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1, because it does speak to this, but let me just say this. You don't want to discover on your wedding day that your wife's a sorry kisser. Here's what it says. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man. Now, I'm reading the English Standard Version, not to have sexual relations with a woman. New American Standard says not to touch a woman. It's an interesting, if you'll notice the translations, some say, I mean, they're all over the chart. Because it's a weird little Greek word. It's a Greek word, hopto. Except it's in the middle voice in the Greek tense here. Literally, the Greek word hopto means to light a fire. When you put it in the middle voice, like it is in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1, it means not to touch. In other words, the idea is that I don't touch in a way that ignites a sexual fire. It's a very simple little principle. So if you're dating, you don't ever, the minute you sense a sexual desire rising, you back away from the situation because you, the whole intent of a sexual relationship is to lose control and you stop it before it even gets close to that. So you do have a biblical directive. But when we start adding all these little rules to it, 
All we're doing is adding men's rules, and there are a bunch of us that are living out men's rules way more than we're dealing with God's rules. You and I are to arise in the morning and pursue godliness, but that godliness has got to be his idea of godliness, not what some man has put on my life. Because here's what's going to happen. If I ignore holiness, and I just do my own thing, I come and sing, but I'm going to live my life my way. Now listen to me carefully. If I do that, the enemy will hook me into certain sins that I don't even realize he's hooked me in. And let me be clear. It is not want to wreck your life in your 20s. It wants to wreck your life in your 40s and 50s when the damage is huge. So he will hook you. So you live in this kind of phony grace your whole life. When you hit the 40s and 50s, he will take those hooks, grab you, wreck your life, destroy you, destroy the family you've created, destroy every bit of reputation you have, and ruin other people in the process. If you live out this intense holiness in man's laws, what happens is, this is what always happens, for a while you're just tired. You can't live it out. If you're a mom, stay-at-home mom, with two kids under the age of three, and I get up here and I give you all the rules for a quiet time that you've got to have an hour a day with Jesus, it's got to be early in the morning, and if you don't have an hour a day with Jesus, something's wrong with you, and you're not spiritual, you're not godly, I don't think God puts that on young moms. You're lucky if you're just awake during the day. So what happens is we get all these rules and then we just get fatigued. What happens? This is the genius of what the enemy will do. Either I get tired and I quit, but before I get tired, you know what he'll do to me? He'll say, you're not doing enough. You need to pray more. You need to go to Bible study. You need to listen to more Christian music. He'll put all that stuff on me. So what's making me tired, he will increase and I'll go with it until I'm exhausted. He will take my chest piece off the board either by putting me in position where he hooks me and he damages me or he'll take my chest piece off the board where I get so tired I just quit and I'm exhausted. I don't hate Jesus, but I can't do this anymore because it just doesn't work. He said, well, if I'm intentional about my holiness, if, if, if the songs we sang today, I, I, I begin to think about living out, and the truth in the scripture, and I'm intentional about my holiness, and it's God's holiness, not mine, and I get out here, what happens when I fail? And you will fail. You're going to have some days where you don't love your husband, you don't love your wife, you don't love your kids, you treat people at work badly, you lie about something, you cheat on your taxes, you're going to have days where you sin. But what do you do? I remind Satan about this verse 
Here's what he says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now listen. Now listen to me carefully. Because some of you are missing this. If I'm intentional about holiness, and I step over and I, I really, I, I bomb. I fail. Went to porn site, trashed my wife, trashed my husband. I'm horrible to the kids. Whatever we all do periodically. When I step here, now listen to me carefully. Okay? He says if we confess our sins. Now listen. The Greek word confess is homologeo. It comes from the word we get homogenized from the first part. The same as, and lego is to speak. So the idea is I simply am agreeing with God about what he says about myself. So if I'm out here walking and I turn and all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I've really mistreated my wife. I've automatically at that point, the moment I recognize my sin as sin, I've confessed. You don't have to sit there and make this big long, oh God, please. I mean, you don't have to do that. You've automatically confessed. Why? Because you agree with what he's telling you about your sin. And here's what it says. I then come back up into an automatic forgiveness. It's my favorite Greek word in the New Testament. Ephemi. I remind Satan of that word. I give it to him in the Greek. Ephemi. It's used in John 4. Where the woman gets saved, she had a water pot, and the Bible says she left her water pot and ran into town. She forgot it. That's the Greek word for forgiveness. When I confess, and I agree with God, you're right, the minute I turn and get back on this thing, my sin's gone. He's forgotten it. Now, this guy still remembers it, the enemy. The people in my life will still remember it. I will still remember it, but here's the deal. People in your life don't matter. You don't matter. Satan doesn't matter. The only one that matters is God, and he doesn't remember what you did. So I'm okay. So I can get up. I can walk again. I fail. I get up. I can walk again. I fail. I can get up, and I can walk again. Now, listen to me careful. I'm almost done. If I do this, if I seek out God's holiness with intentionality tomorrow morning, and I walk this way, God's holiness, not mine, and I walk this way, I will make an amazing discovery. Happiness is never what I seek. Happiness is good circumstances. You're not going to have those all the time. Joy is what I seek. Man's rules don't bring me joy when I keep them. They bring me fatigue. But when I really begin to obey Him, I really begin to seek His holiness and His directive for my life, when I do that, here's what I will soon discover. When I turn off here, I'll go, oh, this is miserable. And when I step back, 
and I'm walking in holiness, I will discover a joy that is unbelievable. The reason a lot of us are depressed and we struggle is because we're intentionally seeking man's holiness, not God's holiness. Or we beat ourselves up when we sin. And I'm telling you, we have churches that will do that. We have some people, we have churches that if you've had a divorce, you're not serving anywhere in the church. If you've had an abortion, you're not working in the youth group. If you've struggled with same-sex issues, you're not working anywhere. You are banished because of particular sins. No. I'm forgiven. I come back. There is a joy from finding His holiness and a fatigue from finding men's holiness. If we're on the chessboard and we want to be attractive as a chess piece, we're not going to be attractive when we're tired, fatigued, and exhausted because we put things on us we shouldn't put on. We're not going to be attractive when we don't reflect His holiness. But when I reflect His holiness and I find the joy that comes from holiness, that chess piece is loud and effective, and that is God's call for our life. Let's pray. Father, hold us into your holiness. There are a bunch of us in this room we are bound by stuff men have taught us. We're worried about things we shouldn't be worried about. We're exhausted. We've got young moms that have been beat up over devotions and they just need to love their kids and seek you as best they can. We have beaten beaten each other up with all sorts of goofy stuff. Father, move us back to your holiness, your forgiveness, and let us find your joy. As Paul wrote, we are not ignorant of what he does. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You have never met Jesus Christ. You're on the wrong side of the chessboard. You've got to make a shift today, and you can't make that shift. Only Jesus can move you from one side to the other. If you're hearing God's calling you to be a part of this church, or if you've been living in a bondage that's just crazy, then let today be the day you change that. Staff and I are here at the front. We'll be glad to pray with you as the Holy Spirit speaks to you this morning. You come.